not even sure if sponsoring your own podcast is a thing, but we're going to give it a go for the remainder of this series because She Can, She Did has just launched the UK's first ever benefits programme curated for and by self-employed women in the UK. And so I wanted to use this opportunity to tell you all a little bit about it. The new She Can, She Did Benefits programme provides all self-employed women, female founders and freelancers with access to the health and financial benefits that come hand in hand with a corporate career, like pensions, health insurance, gym memberships, eye care, etc, etc, plus a whole host of additional fashion, beauty, well-being, parenthood and lifestyle incentives too, with over 60 plus brands on board and counting, including the likes of Pure Gym, Hiscox, Penfold and Vision Express on the more traditional benefits front, to the likes of Esper, Bloom and Wild, Higher Street, HelloFresh and Oh Mama on the ultimate rewards front. For just £5.99 per month, you will gain access to a whole host of exclusive benefits and rewards to support both your business and your life, which, let's face it, will become all the more important as we all try and navigate the uncertainty that the coming months present. Plus, all members benefit from weekly online events with industry experts at no extra cost too, along with many, many more perks of the programme. Visit shecanshedid.com for more details if you're interested, or of course, feel free to just click on the link in this episode's show notes. I feel like Cheryl when I say the next bit, but here goes. She can, she did. Your resilience rewarded. Hello everybody and welcome back to the second half of series four of the She Can, She Did podcast hosted by me, Fiona Grayson. I hope you're all well and having a lovely, lovely week so far amidst what I'm sure we can all agree is a pretty odd time for all of us at the moment. I don't know about you lot, but selling sunset on repeat and a whole lot of country walks with the dogs without my phone are helping a whole lot right now. I have no doubt that a lot of you will already be aware of today's guest and the incredible work that she does to enhance the visibility and confidence of women all over the world. But just in case you haven't, a few weeks back, I got to speak with the inimitable Lauren Curry, OBE and founder of both Upfront, a business committed to elevating and encouraging new voices on and off public stages around the world, as well as Stride, an app that is committed to democratising leadership development for the workforce of the future. Given that Lauren's been running various businesses for the past 12 years, there was so, so much that we unpicked in this chat. Be it her advice on battling loneliness and imposter syndrome as a business owner, how she handled being told that she was too much for men before meeting her husband, to how popping a post-it note in the ladies' bathroom at a conference led her to create what is now up front. Choosing the soundbite for this episode has proved to be so, so stressful because every other sentence of hers, as you will soon hear, was filled with so, so much good advice. Apologies for the slight signal glitches throughout. That is recording in lockdown for you. One day I promise I'm going to nail this. But if you're willing to overlook that, I have no doubt you're going to love, love, love what she has to say. This is Lauren's story so far. Lauren, I watched your TED talk earlier in prep for this and one of the things that struck me was once upon a time you obviously product design was your background and 
you dreamed of becoming the next Dyson. Mm. Talk me through how you got into this whole self-employment journey. Um, we'll go right back to the beginning and kind of make our way through the years. So, gosh, where to start? So, yeah, I was on a mission to be the next James Dyson, the next Steve Jobs. Went to university to study product design. So I was really lucky that I discovered design when I was really young at secondary school. And I distinctly remember the day that my art teacher showed me a sketch of a TV remote control that somebody had redesigned for someone with arthritis. And I remember having this moment of like, holy shit, every single thing we use and touch in every aspect of our daily life has been designed by somebody. That's somebody's job. So then I became obsessed with product design. You know, I was learning to design everything from wheelie bins to lampshades and toasters. So went off to university, the Duncan of Jordanson Art School in Dundee. And very early on in my studies, I discovered this thing called service design, which was during a lecture by Professor Mike Press when he was talking to us about design against crime. So the fact that you could design physical environments, spaces, experiences and products to make crime less likely. And I remember having such a, like my mind was just blown to think we can use creativity, we can use our the design process that we use to make objects, we can use that to design services and systems. And that was when I became obsessed with this notion of service design, which is now, you know, known, also known as customer experience design, sometimes systems design. And at that time, it wasn't something that you could study or read a book about. So I basically taught myself by making friends with the people in industry who were practicing it. Long story short, graduated and discovered that all of the service design jobs were down south. And I decided to build my own agency to build a service design consultancy in Scotland for Scotland. And that was my first business. It's amazing. Was there a kind of trail of thought anywhere because it didn't exist? Was that ever an obstacle for you? Did you see that as an obstacle or was it very much like, okay, it doesn't exist, I'll, I'll do it myself? Like, what was your attitude to the fact that you're straight out of uni and you go into launching a business? Was it quite natural? So I think a huge amount of it was helpful naivety. Mm. Like, I didn't actually realise what I was signing up to, what I was creating, what I was committing to. I did my internship at a company called Think Public and they were a similar agency based in London, but they were very focused on health services. And I think seeing them and getting to know them and their work made me think I could create that same type of entity that does the same type of work in Scotland. And, you know, when you go to art school, and I think this is quite common across lots of different industries, in Scotland there is quite a strong message of you know, you graduate and you go to London. And there was many people like me who really, you know, we we really reacted to that and felt that strongly, like that we didn't want to leave the country where our families and friends were and the country where, you know, that had given us our education. And it happened very organically. So, you know, it happened by getting one paying customer and then we got another paying customer and then another paying customer. You know, there was no kind of grand strategy and grand business plan in those very, very early days. And I was also 
you know, very privileged in that I had a huge amount of, you know, I could sleep on my friend's sofa. You know, I didn't need to pay rent. I had a mum and dad who were supportive and that was a, you know, a safe haven that I could always go back to their house. So I think it's really important to recognise that when you hear all these stories of starting businesses and taking leaps and taking risks, like often there's a huge safety net under people. And don't get me wrong, you know, I don't have a financial safety net. I was the first person in my family to go to university. I went to a very standard school in a very impoverished area. But, you know, I did have love and support and I'm also white. And that means that there's a huge amount of barriers that, you know, weren't there for me. Mm, it's so, so true. Even that the love and support element, you know, I feel like I've interviewed so many founders now and the ones where that hasn't been the case, that alone as a barrier, it's just such a huge obstacle because my parents were the same, like, you know, mum and dad were just then they still are so unbelievably supportive, even though it was a kind of jump in and like you said, that blind naivety. I'm really interested, though, for any, you know, young woman straight out of university, you obviously said there was no plan and it was that kind of first client. Was that a case of just an email, a conversation? You know, I always think the first ones are the hardest ones when you've got absolutely nothing to show for yourself. So how did you get that first initial client? Well, obviously, I know that this business was a while ago now, but I'm just really interested because it is all those layers have led to where you are, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, a, I actually sat and kind of mapped them all out in preparation for this conversation. And there's five businesses, six businesses, actually, <laughs> for me to talk about. And they all different shapes and sizes and, you know, created with different constellations of people and some founded on my own. And I think the story about you know, where do you get that first client? How does it first emerge? The one that I think is most interesting in that respect is upfront. And that is right now I run, I have three businesses, Stride, which is uh, leadership. We're building a new type of leadership product that takes up most of my time. And I have a co-founder there, Mike. And then Upfront, which is my own business. I set it up in 2016. I'm the founder and the, the CEO and that's all about changing confidence and visibility for women. And Letter Love Shop, which is an art business. I'm not sure how we describe it because it's very much a very tiny side hustle, but we sell gender neutral nursery art for small people. So I've drawn all the art and my partner does all the website and the back end stuff. And upfront is super interesting in relation to your question because it was never ever supposed to become a business. And when I look back, it's like a really beautiful, compelling story. But at the time, it was just total chaos and there was no plan. There was no brand. So Upfront came about because I was so frustrated often being the only woman keynote speaker at conferences. And I started to dig into, you know, naively, again, asking very naive questions. Why is this happening? Why are there not more women up here? Why are there not more people of color up here? And I landed on this insight that there's currently no way to practice being on stage. The way that we develop new skills and build new muscles in our professional lives, there's lots of courses, books, opportunities. When it comes to public speaking, there aren't any. Mm -hmm. The first time you're up there, you're up there and you have to be, you know, charming and eloquent. So my hypothesis was, what if we create a way for speakers to share their power, share their stage? and have a big giant red sofa on stage with them so that people with stage fright can acclimatize to the environment. And fast forward four years of that couch being at events all over the world, over 500 people sitting on the couch, 
what happened was people would sit on the couch and be like, oh my goodness, like what happens now? Do you have a course I can go on or a book I can buy or a podcast? And I was like, no, I have none of those things. <laughs> so I will invent one. And you know, Upfront happened at the side of my, in inverted commas, day job all the time for the past four years. It was very much something that I thought worked on, you know, evenings, weekends, crafted out spare time in my day and built a suite of workshops and programs that we started to run for businesses. Then we opened them to the public. Then, you know, there was such a demand that I realized, you know, I need to make an online version for this because I don't want it to be London centric. And then that's led to our latest product, my online course, which just went live two weeks ago. And I think that story is powerful because not only was there no business plan or strategy, there was no intention for it to become a business. I think the best businesses come from the founder wanting to solve a problem that they deeply care about. And all of my businesses live in that box. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, like I said to you on our intro call, before launching She Can, She Did, I used to produce finance conferences around the world. And it was just so blatantly obvious at every single conference. It was just middle-aged men in suits. And there might be out of a lineup of 50 speakers for the day, one or two women, yeah. always white women. And when we tried to really push it the last year that I was there, because we were an all girl team, we really tried to kind of do like women in FX, women in tech. And it was starting to bubble up. But even then you'd send out double the amount of invites you had to send out to men. Neither you didn't have the women in those positions or the women that were in those positions would turn them down because of lack of confidence. Then you suddenly get this like circular problem that you kind of you're trying to fix. And it's just, yeah, it's, I think what you've done is just such a clever way to break through that. But let's roll with that then four years ago, because I know that obviously Upfront is a business that's still going. Mm-hmm. Even the concept of just bringing a sofa onto a stage it's just so random so talk me through (laughs) how you actually went about convincing people or just kind of getting it off the ground I suppose because this is what I always find so interesting in these podcasts is people kind of say about the ideas but actually there's such a difference between having these amazing ideas that you care about and then actually doing them putting them into practice so what did that look like for you and were there any obstacles that you had to overcome even in those initial first few days weeks trying to get it off the ground Yeah, 100%. I think ideas are very cheap. Ideas are easy. It's the execution that is difficult and execution that sets you apart from your competition. I think a big part of where Upfront came from is linked back to my design background and my design training. My service design background means that I'm, you know, I see the world through a design lens, which means that I'm always asking, you know, how might this be better? Why are things this way? How does this person feel about it being this way? And how does that person feel about it this way? And what system is this problem part of? And the way that that manifested itself for Upfront is actually really interesting because I can pinpoint several very significant moments where the idea started to take shape. So the first moment was the day that I decided to stop complaining about this problem and commit to trying to fix it, which is a quote that Swiss Miss Tina Ross Eisenberg, who's a designer that I really admire, she always talks about, you know, you're allowed to complain three times 
and then you need to try and fix it. So I definitely used up my quota of complaints. I was standing <laughs> on a stage with, I think, 10 other white men. It was the only woman on the bill. And I made the choice to call it out in my talk. I went off script and I said to the audience, I don't understand what is happening here. I have a problem with this and I think you do too. And I put a post-it note in the women's toilets that said, do you want to be on stage? Like tweet me and tell me. What woman do you wish you could see on stage? Who is she? Where can I find her? Tweet me and tell me. And those two things combined meant I had hundreds of people talking to me online. I had a physical queue of men, women, people from all genders queuing up to talk to me at this event about this problem. And that was the day that I realized like, wow, this is complex. It's intersectional. It's systemic. It's not something that any one person or any one business can solve, right? But through these conversations, my design background enabled me to pick up on, you know, what we would call an insight, you know, so an insight that kept appearing around the actual physical act of standing up on a raised stage. So I was hearing lots of different versions of the story of, you know, there's no way I would stand up there. I could never imagine myself up there. I've never been on a stage before. And that was when I started to think, okay, what is the minimum viable prototype? What is the smallest, cheapest, quickest way I could test something to see if I can help this tiny segment of this problem? And I had a keynote coming up in like two weeks' time at a conference called Silicon Beach. So I emailed Matt Desmere, who runs it. And I've still got the email now. I'm like, I don't really know why I'm asking you, but I've kind of got this idea. We'll have a sofa. We'll send an email to all the people who are buying a ticket and we'll say, do you want to come and sit on stage, help you get over stage fright? You know, what do you think? And Matt and his brilliance was like, you're bonkers, but fine. Like, go for it. Try it out. And we did it. And we had something like 50, 60 people reply to say, I want to be on stage. Then immediately, I'm in a one-to-one dialogue with 50 people who have got the problem that I'm investigating and want the solution that I've offered. So then I get a whole other bunch of insight. Then the day that it happened at Silicon Beach, I was able to talk to the organizer. I was able to talk to people in the audience. I was able to talk to the people who actually sat on the couch. Then I get a whole other host of insight. And, you know, that cycle never, ever stops. It's like constantly listening to your customers, observing the problem and iterating your solution based on that. And that process is full of obstacles, still is. Like for every person that I meet that thinks upfront is powerful and vital and important, I meet two people who are like, sorry, what? A couch? I don't understand. And of course, those people are usually white, middle class, privately educated men who run conferences who don't have the capacity to empathize with what it would feel like for that act of sitting on the couch to be useful Mm. because it's so far away from their relationship with the stage, with their understanding of confidence and how it works. So yeah, I mean, there's been lots of obstacles. Let's run with that because I saw um, you recently shared the Dita Von Teese quote that I love, the one about peaches. Mm. And it's true. You can have a hundred people telling you what you're doing is great. And then there's always one that has an issue with it. And it's so easy to say in terms of the advice, you know, focus on the good. What's your advice for when those comments that don't agree with what you're doing come through? Like, How do you handle that and, and you know, deal with it? 
Yeah, it's a really good question. And actually, me and my co-founder at Stride, we were just having this conversation because we had an email from somebody who doesn't like our font. Mm, yeah. And they think that our font is contradicting our brand values. And was there any more like explanation? Did they kind of go into the details? Like, what, what's, what's so offensive about it? Yeah, I can bring it to life for you. So at Stride, we are responding to the fact that leadership development is very traditional, very masculine, very academic, means there's a whole population of people who don't see themselves in that space. And we want to build a product that speaks to everybody, no matter what your job title is, even if you're employed or unemployed, regardless of what age you are. So that means we're taking a much more inclusive, feminine, warm approach in how we are building our product, but also the brand that we're building. And the woman in question, and you know, I she might be listening to this, I love feedback and I welcome all of it. And her email was kind and thoughtful. And she told us lots of things she liked and things that she wasn't so keen on. And she said, also, I'm, you know, I'm feeling tension with the font because it's very bold and it's very masculine and that's not what Stride's about. Now, one instinct is to have a knee-jerk reaction of like, oh my God, we need to rebrand. Another instinct is to be like, this is one person. Nobody else has said that, so we will not listen to that. And another one, which I think is probably, for me, somewhere in the middle, which is like, I hear it and I absorb it. And I think about, you know, where is that in terms of our priority lists? Like, how important is that for the stage of the game we're in? Have I heard anybody else share feedback like this or along these lines? And, you know, I kind of look at it and explore it a bit. I think, for example, we've probably had 100 emails from people saying, we want to be able to take notes in the app. And now we've built that feature because that was hands down, unequivocally, people want this. Mm. Now, if we meet again in a month and I've had 10 more emails about the font, then we'll probably have started to have conversations about it. But I think for me, where it's been hardest is the businesses that I run on my own or have run on my own when you don't have that sounding board to say what do we think of this like we've had some feedback let's put it on the table let's look at it what do you think what do I think let's decide together what we think and then you do something with it and I think I try very hard to work in the open I've been blogging for 12 years I'm in you know I use social media very actively and I try to share as much as I can of the process and of the learnings and I feel people's like oh you know you must get so much negativity and so much backlash and the the truth is it's happened once in 12 years and that happened for a very political reason because I painted my face blue and went on an anti-Brexit march and took a photograph of my face and put it on the internet. And that hashtag meant that I was exposed to lots of trolls. It was over within 24 hours. Mm. So professionally, I just don't think that that negativity exists the way that I think a lot of women worry about it more for very valid reasons. You know, our news feeds are full of MPs and authors and celebrities who are getting death threats and getting haunted for standing up for what they believe in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, by the time this goes live, the next bit of She Can, She Did will be up and running. But I partnered with a charity called Glitch. That Oh, see? Yeah, 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 exactly. So we've partnered on that because of that exact reason, because it, it's really refreshing to hear that aspect, because there's a lot of brand owners that when they are 
public facing and share a lot of their personal lives on there as well, opening themselves up to so much of the trolling, the endless onslaughts of criticism. Mm. And from my perspective, yeah, just I don't agree with it at all. Yeah, there's so much I could say on that, but I think it's really nice to hear one comment for 12 years in the business. That's absolutely incredible. Given that you do spend so much time on there, do you kind of have boundaries and stuff in place? So what's your advice for, I suppose, making sure that you're looking after yourself online or what's it called, like digital self-care and all mm-hmm. that kind of thing? I know that we're kind of going off on a tangent, Lauren, but I just feel like there's so much I want to ask you. And I just think this is, yeah, it's such an interesting topic. It's a good question, Fee, and I, you know, let's be honest, I have definitely not got it all figured out. I spend more time on my phone than I would like to. I have got, you know, a strong self-awareness that I am using a product that is designed to make me addicted to it. So some things that I've done that have worked, so I'm really strict in that I don't take my phone into my bedroom at night. I have an alarm clock. And that was particularly important when my baby was really small and, you know, we were waking up sometimes six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Oh, I'm just counting now. Six, seven (laughs) times in the night. It's because I'm always teaching them to count. I go into this like, and, you know, when they're really wee, you want to try and keep track of like, when are they waking in and how much do they feed? And I would look at my phone and then that would wake me up. And I really wish I'd got an alarm clock much earlier. My phone stays in a different room. I try and put it on airplane mode in the evenings, say like after nine o'clock if I can. But what's hard for me is I live in Sussex. We don't have any friends and family nearby, apart from a couple of friends that we see often. And that means that my phone is my link to my family and my friends as well. So, you know, we want to FaceTime and we want to WhatsApp and I find that quite challenging when I've been at work all day on a screen and then I want to FaceTime my family. It's like now I'm back on a screen. I don't use Facebook at all. I cut Facebook out quite a few years ago. Yeah, my Facebook's set to silence. So every couple of months I check in and there's suddenly all these things that I've missed. But I just, yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah, and I think for Instagram, I use a scheduling tool because I try and write when I'm feeling excited and creative. And then, you know, I'll set it up to post for me. This year, I've been making a lot more video content than I ever have done before. And I'm really enjoying that because it's something that I love to create. And it's also, I think, a really brilliant way to connect with people and a kind of different way for people to engage with me and consume what I want to share with them. So I started a YouTube channel to put all those videos in one place. I think it's got like 50 subscribers or something embarrassing. So you got to start somewhere. <laughs> yes. When I started, it was 12 and I was like, oh, this will be, <laughs> but this is it. Like I do, as much as I'm a bit embarrassed, there's. No, there's a... start somewhere. That's what puts so many people off. Though, I know, but it? I actually feel quite motivated by like, this is so fun. I've screenshotted this and in three years, I'll be able to be like, look, one day it was only. I see it as a bit of a challenge and I think you're right I meet so many women who are so like well what's the point because nobody's following me and I do really believe that it's not about numbers it's about engagement and you know if you've got six followers imagine there were six people sat around your kitchen dinner table like that's a lot of people who are listening to what you're saying and you know I'd rather have a really powerful conversation around a dinner table yeah exactly (laughs) so I'd rather have six people who were 
really engaged and excited than 6,000 people who were not. And, you know, I am thinking deeply about my relationship with Instagram in particular because there's lots of things about that platform that I disagree with. There's lots of reasons that I don't want to make the people who own that product richer than they already are. So, yeah, I've been thinking about what my future strategy might look like in terms of having a space that is owned by me or owned by somebody else where I can share really high quality content that's exclusive to, you know, people who want to have a deeper relationship with me. Yeah, absolutely love that. And likewise, the number of conversations have echoed that, I think, in terms of Instagram specifically. I think there'll be quite a big shift coming up. But you mentioned there you've raised your game with video content. And, you know, 12 years in... I'm sure there's so many trends that have come and gone. What have you found to be the, I suppose, biggest challenges? Obviously, we've them in so far, but yeah, what's been the hardest part about the past 12 years or any kind of key things that you have really struggled with that come hand in hand with being your own boss? Such a big question. I think prioritisation is something that I haven't cracked yet because I am very ambitious, very full of ideas. I get a huge amount of energy from starting and creating. And I think I can see I can see that pattern shifting as I get older and I reflect more and I learn from the past. But I think when I look back on the early first half of that 12 years, I found it hard to stay focused on the long game. Like, this is a long, 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 long-term strategy. So I find that hard. I think it's lonely. When I look at some of my girlfriends I went to school with or friends who still live in Scotland where my parents live, I've moved something like 14 times in those years. I moved from Scotland to Manchester, then spent some time in Spain, then moved to London. We're just about to move to Sweden traveled a huge amount you know my 20s I worked every day all day and I now see now that I'm 33 and I've got a family and I'm kind of often looking back the way I can see that friendships are hard to form when you move around so much and you work so much and you know I'm very lucky that I have an amazing network of weak ties I have somebody that I could have lunch with probably in every city in Europe, but I don't have a long list of people who will phone me at the weekend and ask me how I am. And that's hard. Mm. And there were times where I had just given up on the idea that I was going to find a partner who wanted to be with the woman who worked like I did and was as ambitious as I am. But I'm very, very lucky and happy that I met Chris That was something that I struggled with for a while. I kind of had made up my mind, like I'm probably just going to be on my own because men were intimidated and scared by my ideas, my working style, however we want to describe it. There's so much I want to unpick in this. Let's run with this one for for now. There are so many. Do you know what? My partner, you actually lectured him once because he went to... Did you go to Dundee Uni? That's really bad. He did product design. But he gets my head. Like, he just gets my ambition. He just gets it. But I was so like you beforehand. And I know that that is something that will be echoed by so many ambitious women out there. What's your advice for them? Because I just want to scream and just say, don't 
compromise you know the right person will come but equally when you're single that's frustrating advice sometimes it's just like coming from someone that met someone it's always like yeah 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 but do you know what I mean what yeah. would you say because it is such a it can be really hard yeah and I think it's very hard if you're a woman who wants to have a baby mm. wants to have a family because we have a very specific biological factor yeah. in that equation I know for me, you know, that was part of the narrative. I, I've always known that I wanted to be a mum and I've always felt like I wanted to have a family for as long as I can remember. But, you know, my late 20s, when other people were getting pregnant and moving in together and buying houses and doing all the things. I mean, the thing to remember is like all of this is bullshit made up rules that some white dude invented hundreds of years ago. Like it's all made up. And you don't need to adhere to any of it. Yeah, absolutely. I get that that's very easy to say and very hard to do. But I also think I've come a huge way with my feminism and my understanding of gender inequality and women's rights. And I think back to even six years ago, I didn't realise how strong I was and didn't realise how powerful I was. I thought I needed a man. I thought I needed a relationship, which that makes me want to scream at my past self. All of that time I wasted on dating apps and worrying about that, I could have spent on myself. Mm. And I think it's a really complicated thing. And you're right, it's something nobody's ever asked me this before. I've never had this conversation. And I know that's what you like to do on this podcast. So well done. <laughs> Got the exclusive. Yeah, and I I've made all my notes and that wasn't on the notes so well done Sorry. you're good at your job but yeah I, I remember having a conversation with a friend of my parents and it was a version of you're too much you're too loud you're too bold you're too in your face you're too opinionated you're too I just think no like you're always going to feel too something for somebody that is how the patriarchy stays in power, by making women feel like we are not good enough. Mm. The truth is, the person that you decide to have a relationship with, if you choose to be in a monogamous relationship, will have a massive effect on your career and your ambition and what you can achieve. And that is something that I want women to take really seriously. And I want them to have those conversations early. Mm. I am only able to work the way that I work and have a baby because of the sacrifices that my partner makes. You know, he was doing a PhD. He's a biologist. He was studying his PhD and he quit that PhD so that we could have a baby. We don't hear men saying, well, the reason that I'm able to be on 10 board seats is because my wife has not worked for 10 years. I'm like, well, you know, whatever that story might be. And I have to sometimes catch myself because I hear myself sharing it because I want to expose people to a different narrative. And I know that there will be people who might look at my Instagram and think, well, how the hell is she doing all that and she has a baby? because of my partner, because of the way that we've decided to split things very intentionally, that doesn't mean that it's all rosies. You know, there are days where I feel like I'm being a bad mum. And there are days where he probably feels really jealous that I get to come in here and have really interesting conversations with smart people. And he has to talk to Atlas all day who can't really talk properly yet because he's only two. 
you know? Yeah. And I just think it's really important that we talk openly and honestly about them. With no judgment as well. Yeah. So I think that's it. I think it can get really... A lot of my friends have children and had children quite young and I don't, but I really want to one day. But I just already from these conversations and just witnessing it, there's so much judgment in that motherhood space. And I think add a business, like being a business owner within that, that's another layer that's already comes with its own challenges. Again, it's just like whatever works for you. And like, that's okay, whatever that looks like. But it's just yeah the honesty that comes with it to like normalize all of these different Mm. ways of that juggle in inverted commas I can only imagine how tough it is I honestly take my hat off to all of you that are doing it I just think wow Lauren you also said like loneliness with friendships as Mm -hmm. well and again I think that's one of the most recurring challenges that comes up how do you deal with that loneliness so that it doesn't become like all-consuming do you know what I mean because if it's like you said earlier business is you're in it for the long haul as a long-term thing so yeah what's your advice for handling that reality that can sometimes come along with that yeah I mean I don't know if I've got an answer I think part of it has been to do the work to reflect on you know why things are the way they are join the dots and that it's not something to do with my personality or my dance moves it's actually because I've moved a lot and friendships are very reliant on sharing the same physical geographical area I think you know a lot of my friends also live in different countries which means we have a very digital relationship so that means if I'm hurting or I need advice, there's people that I can FaceTime, but I might not have somebody that I can go have lunch with. And I think for me, I, I just try and see the bigger picture. And also there's a whole version of this story, which for me was also linked to motherhood. You know, becoming a mother also really, for me anyway, changed my friendships dramatically. And there was a lot of people who I thought were my friends who didn't really show up for me at that time. And a lot of people who did show up who I didn't realise cared for me as much as they've shown that they did. And I use my, what's the minimum viable prototype we can build here? And these things as well, like I created a WhatsApp group called The Online Village and invited other women who didn't have friends and family in the same area as them. They invited people they knew that were like that. And, you know, for a time, there was, I think, about 100 of us in that WhatsApp group that was very active when our babies were small, you know, and we had a monthly FaceTime and babies feeding or on our laps and you know that was really powerful and now when I think you know that WhatsApp group's not really very active anymore because most of the people in it have babies that our babies are now two and three and that's you know we don't have the same like when you're awake at three o'clock in the morning every night it can be hugely hugely isolating and there's something really powerful knowing you can turn your phone on and there's five other women who are also up at three o'clock so I think it's also about being proactive where you can yeah definitely couldn't agree more with that and the first challenge you mentioned was that prioritization and someone that's six businesses in Mm -hmm. do you think that the current businesses can you see yourself running these in five ten fifteen years down the line or do you think given that you love that early stage bit so much are you already kind of plotting things for the future Oh, good question. So I'm definitely start, I mean, Stride is the newest I joined over Christmas. And, you know, I'm definitely approaching this with a very new perspective, which is this is a five, 10 year strategy. And when I get the urge to create something new, 
I will create that thing under the umbrella of my business. And this was actually, I was listening to a podcast with Sharma Dean Reed, who's the founder of Beauty Stack. And she talked about, you know, she has a very similar thing and she's challenged herself to create those new things within our business. And that was a huge like aha moment for me. And it's something that I'm really committed to. Like, how can I keep feeding that creative energy, but doing it under the same umbrella? And, you know, right now, both Stride and Upfront have the potential to be global billion pound businesses. I think what one becomes that and what shape they take will be very dependent on how the market response to what I'm creating I think it's very possible to nurture them both potentially at different paces Uh, Mm. but they are definitely a five ten year plan I think things that I'm working on I'm having a few conversations with different people about a book which is something that would be such an honor and a joy to and very very hard I hear that message um, to do but I will do that in a way that benefits and enhances the businesses rather than, you know, takes my attention elsewhere. Yeah, I love that so much. And in terms of, I guess, given that they have that potential to scale, mm-hmm. when you think about that potential, do you ever get the imposter syndrome or do you kind of see that and you're like, okay, I'll rise to it? So a big part of my job is helping other women understand what imposter syndrome is, where it comes from, how to make friends with it. I think, you know, our understanding of imposter syndrome is usually quite flawed and that we forget that it's directly linked to gender, race, class, socioeconomic status. That's often the part of the conversation that I think a lot of these conversations miss. It's definitely a bit of a buzzword and a trend. And absolutely, do I have days where I think I have got no fucking idea what I'm doing? 100%. Do I imagine being the CEO of a 400-person company and think I can do that and I will do that? 100%. And I think those two things can exist at the same time. And for me, if I didn't ever have moments of self-doubt or fear, that would be concerning to me. You know, I think... I I care very much about my work and the people that I'm trying to support through my work. And I think if that voice disappeared completely, that would be a sign to me that, you know, my ego had taken over. I think those voices are there for a reason. The challenge and where you want to get to is that you act anyway. And, you know, a lot of people have asked me about this before. and like, how do you do the thing despite the voice? I do think in a way that's my superpower. Like I just always still do the thing. Even if all the voices are telling me not to. And I do think a big part of why that happens is my design training. You know, I've been taught how to prototype. What is the smallest, scrappiest, cheapest way? Like let's sketch it on the back of this napkin. Let's have a conversation with the taxi driver about it and pretend it exists and see what he says. Let's put it into the world. Let's give it a name. And that's all before spending any money, before thinking about business plans, before making any investments. And all of that means it's, it's okay when things go wrong. Like mistakes are a source of learning. Mistakes give you data about how to be better. And, you know, I've done a lot of work with organizations. I gave a keynote to the National Trust last year about how do you build a culture in your organization where failure is embraced? And I think for teams in larger organizations who want to innovate and want to get creative, it's really, really important that they figure that out. 
most people are scared to say what they truly think in a team meeting. Mm. And that is very problematic. There is a direct link between how safe your people feel in your team meeting to how creative and innovative and productive they will be. And not enough organizations recognize that link. I've gone off track a bit, but I think that's... No, that's so... I mean, I could honestly talk to you all day, Lauren, but like, I know we've gone off on a bit of a tangent on this one, but I just feel like you're just... Every answer is just so wise. So, if, um, yeah, no Aww, um, I always end with some statements mm-hmm. to wrap this up. So, if it's okay with you, I will start and I'd like you to finish, please. So, being my own boss means I get to decide. Absolutely. When it's not quite going to plan, my advice would be to reflect on what the situation is teaching you. Yep, absolutely. If I could describe myself as a businesswoman, I'd say that I am. Building ladders as I climb. Love this. If I could go back to day one of my business, I would tell myself. Every person that you work with has got the potential to fuck you over, so don't let them. (laughs) Oh my God, I love that. (laughs) Yeah, so true. And very lastly, I want my legacy to be that. I mean, I don't know. I'm writing it every day. Like, uh, sharing your power is what matters most. Thank you so much, honestly. I feel like if that wasn't Monday motivation for me, I don't know what would be. Like that was, <laughs> yeah, one of my favourites to date. Thank oh, you so, so wow. much. wow, you've had a lot of amazing people. That's a big deal. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? I do feel like normally when I'm just dealing with like one or two businesses, had we gone through the whole stories of each six businesses, there's so much you can say. So I'm really happy we kind of went off on a tangent there. I, for one, learned so much from that. There's so many takeaways. So thank you. Of course. Thank you so much for listening to that episode. If you have a minute to spare and enjoyed it, of course, it would mean so much to me if you could please rate the podcast below or leave a review if you fancy being extra kind, as apparently it helps to give the series a little boost and helps other female founders and aspiring business owners to find it. For now, though, enjoy the rest of your day and please do look out for next week's episode. (music)